Wow. Unbelievable. So this is massive and growing industry of bullshit. well well yeah i mean it's been going on for decades it's just a fancier or centuries right it's just a fancier snake oil you know i've I've never bought any of these tests because i was i was just afraid it was all bullshit and i was like i don't know what i'm gonna do with the results and like there's no science on it and and i love to like get my test results back and start reading research on what this means and just like a regular cbc or cmp you could spend like months reading about research on what you know your serum potassium or whatever is gonna like indicate for different things and correlations mendelian randomizations and with with all this stuff i was just like i'm not gonna know what to do with it right you know i could like follow what they say but how do i know there's any legitimacy to it hey everyone i am here with tommy wood MD, PhD. He's a neuroscientist, an elite level professional nerd who has coached world-class athletes in a dozen sports. He's currently an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Washington, where his research interests include determinants of brain health across the lifespan, as well as developing easily accessible and equitable methods with which to track health, performance, and longevity in both professional athletes and the general population. I brought him on today because of his knowledge with lab tests. Thanks for coming on, Tommy. Thanks so much for having me, uh, Joe. It's a huge pleasure to be here. The first question I have is, what kind of labs do you like to track? Um, I've it's, had... It's a big question. Yeah, I know. It, is a, it starts out as a big question, but hopefully it gets smaller. I've done all all the tests on myself and a wide range of individuals. You know, I've looked at stool tests, urine tests, hair tests, blood tests, from probably thousands of athletes uh, at this point. There's a lot of tests out there and you know like the, these alternative tests that are called that that are not accepted in mainstream medicine let's say. Yeah. And my theory is that a lot of them are bullshit. And so Yes, that's where I was going. But great. I'm glad you just put that out there. <laughs> but I don't know. It's just a suspicion. So that's actually a great area to talk about. I did not expect to talk about it, but if I, I think you would know about it because you were working with a company that was doing such tests. Yeah. And let's start with something like these uh, organic acids tests. Is it bullshit or is it legit? Just like give me a short answer and a long answer. <laughs> the short answer is it's mainly bullshit. Um, okay, that was my suspicion. Yeah. Basically, so, so, so if, if people don't know what these tests are, right, it, it's basically this idea that there are some remnants of metabolism that you excrete in the urine that you can pick up and it will tell you about things like nutrient status, mitochondrial function, uh, neurotransmitters. And in reality, that's just, it's just not true. And I spent a long time banging my head against these, thinking that there was some really useful information in there. And there are people out there who will say, you know, they can look at all these results and come up with some some magical answers about all those all those things, your mitochondrial function and your neurotransmitters. It's essentially tassiography, which is one of my favorite words, which basically means, which is the fancy term for reading tea leaves. That's essentially what this is. And Sounds like astrology. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Okay. I had my science team look into it, and they came back with mostly bullshit, maybe all bullshit, hard to know what is and what isn't. There's no science on it. Essentially, that's what they came back with. And I was like, well, maybe there's just no science on it. But is the issue there's no science, or is it's just bullshit, and that's why there's no science? You see the question? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. So some of the ideas are, are grounded in science. 
but the application is incorrect. Where actually the ideas come from is that some of these markers that you can pick up in the urine are elevated with inborn errors of metabolism, which are genetic mutations in metabolism that you pick up, you have to pick up very early on in babies so that you can uh, try and mitigate some of the, some of their effects. There's good science for that. You know, they do it in babies who have weird and wonderful issues with their brain function. This is this is something that, you know, I, I work in the division of neonatology as a neonatal neuroscientist. So this is something that is done clinically by my colleagues every day. And in that setting, absolutely, they send urine organic acid tests to look for inborn errors of metabolism. There is absolutely science for that. Okay. Applying those same tests to, you know, otherwise healthy adults, you know, who don't have some of these weird, wonderful genetic mutations, and then expand, you know, expanding them. So you can look at all the different intermediates of the Krebs cycle in urine. And that's something that's done to look at like ratios of like succinate to fumarate, which is telling you something about complex two. That's just not true. Like the idea that what gets excreted in the urine is proportionally similar to what's going on in a specific cell type, or that that's even the same across all the cell types in your body just makes no sense. And I say this as somebody who pretended to be able to do that in the past, and I was just, I was wrong. Those tests, like mostly bullshit. I think there are some things on there that they sort of add that can be useful. So 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine is a marker of uh, oxidative stress DNA damage. That's a pretty well-validated marker, right? Yeah, and yeah, most, I heard of that. Exactly. Yeah, most urine organic acid tests have that. But that's like one marker out of like 100 that they run that's useful. Some companies sell like a, a cycle mapping test in women. Uh, so like you, you pee on a, on a stick or some filter paper every day throughout your cycle. Doing, the, doing like hormone levels for testosterone in men in urine, not great, mainly because common SNPs affect whether you excrete testosterone in the same way in your, in your urine and we have i've had multiple athletes who like their urine is their, their urine testosterone markers are low and it's just because they they have gilbert syndrome which is a you know, very common and it affects it affects how how testosterone is excreted in the urine but for women looking at estrogen and progesterone in the urine that's pr- that's pretty good so so some cycle mapping if you're doing it in combination with somebody who is, you know, like an OBGYN who really understands, you know, and this is in the setting of trying to improve fertility or something like that, that that seems to be reasonably well evidenced. Everything else is pretty much nonsense. I, I love this because this is exactly what my theory was. I was just like, I, I think there's probably one or a couple, like a couple markers in that organic acids test that are legit and and, I, and that one i would say there's i've read research on that so that would be one of them and maybe a few others that you know I, I don't know exactly which ones but and then i thought you know probably the rest of it is bullshit but there's this whole industry of these alternative tests and i used to have a lot of clients and they, they always brought these tests i'm like i don't know what the hell to do with these things because there's no <laughs> science on it right like yeah i'm reading science on my conventional markers all day and all night there's tons of research on it and i want to talk to you about the mendelian randomization because that is like i love that kind uh-huh. of research right yeah but there's, there's research day and night on, on on lab tests and with these alternative tests i'm just like i have no idea what the hell's going on here <laughs> i really have no idea in addition to that you know there are a lot of you know, a lot of people have done like split sample tests, right? So I can just to like test out like what's the robustness of these processes. And this is like people, have, I know people have done this with stool tests and urine tests, right? You take the same sample, right? The same poop, the same pee, you put it in two different pots and you send it to the, you know, send it to the testing company and you get wildly different results from oh the same sample. And like, oh, Lord. just like the, the, the stuff sort of stacks up 
you know, again and again. And like what we would have people repeat tests and it would just look completely different and like no idea why. And it's just because it's just because, you know, there's there's nothing really in there. Wow. Unbelievable. So this is massive and growing industry of bullshit. Telling me. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, it's been going on for decades. It's just a fancier or centuries. Right. It's just a fancier snake oil. You know, I've, I've never bought any of these tests because I was I was just afraid it was all bullshit and i was like i don't know what i'm gonna do with the results and like there's no science on it and and i love to like get my test results back and start reading research on what this means and just like a regular cbc or a cmp you could spend like months reading about research on what you know your serum potassium or whatever is gonna like indicate for different things and correlations mendelian randomizations and with with all this stuff i was just like i'm not gonna know what to do with it right you know i could like follow what they say but how do i know there's any legitimacy to it my cso thinks it's all bullshit also (laughs) (laughs) so it's like there's i but anyway i i I, you i would say there's probably first of all you have the credentials and and necessary knowledge and you really went down this rabbit hole so if you came out of the rabbit hole and you're like, I went down it and it was bullshit, I, I regret it or whatever, I made a mistake. <laughs> like you are the guy to know that. I don't think anybody else that is like legit went down this rabbit hole deep enough to to be able to say with certainty that this is bullshit. I'm sure though. I'm sure there'll that? be some. Yeah, and you know, like once in a while, I'll you know I'll say something like that, and like one person will like send me an angry email with, and they'll and they'll be like, no, this is all the reasons why you're wrong, and that's. Do you know what? If somebody out there has the research and the evidence for why these tests are meaningful, great. I would love to see it. I'd love to change my mind. But so, you know, and, very and happy for that to happen. Me, please <laughs> yeah. see me in that email as well, because I've always been wanting the research. Like, And I've yeah. told people, I was like, please send me research on this yeah. stuff, because I don't want to tell you something from what this means. I really just don't know. It could be bullshit. It could be. Li- I have no idea. Yeah. So CC me on the email when you send an email to Tommy, please. <laughs> but th- this is unbelievable because this is, I think this is a billion dollar industry. Again, like the problem is that useful stuff gets bolted on, right? Because you'll do a urine test and a blood test at the same time. And so there's like a bunch of great blood test stuff in there. Um, and, and so like, it, it's sort of, you know, it's like Trojan horses its way in when you know again there are a bunch of companies that do various versions of this and i've emailed them and said well how does this correlate say with the equivalent in a blood test right because like the blood test we understand for like a hormone blood testosterone i understand that decades of research on how does that compare to a urine testosterone well it doesn't so like you 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 never get a straight response and so these were all the questions i've been wondering for the past 10 years literally i'm like i need to find somebody who really like i just didn't trust any of the people in functional medicine because they're too deep in the shit like i needed i needed to speak to somebody who really knows their stuff well it's one of the reasons i brought you on but i didn't i actually didn't know exactly what you were going to say with regard to this topic but uh, I, I really need to pick your brain with everything here because there's a whole lot of stuff out there that we gotta we gotta discuss. Uh, there's there's the Dutch test, so organic acids test. Overall, we went through it. Yeah. Mostly bullshit. There's one or you know one or two gems in there. Or whatever, I got it. Okay, Dutch tests, right? So these hormone tests. What I'm understanding is there may be some value in tracking it because you're gonna have some kind of reliability in how much you excreted in the urine. But it's not going to be as good as a 
a serum test or blood test can measure your hormones. Is that true or do you have more to say about that? So I like the, the Dutch cycle mapping test in the right context. And it's usually done in women who have fertility issues and they're trying to understand what's going on in the context of a healthcare practitioner who understands that stuff. I think that's useful uh, because you don't want to do a blood test every day for 28 days. But that's a very um, limited use case. It's that's, very that's like limited 1% of the reason why people are yeah. actually getting that test. Yeah, exactly. In a bunch okay. of other scenarios, I've done a Dutch test. And there are other companies that do something, that now do something similar. They've kind of stolen the ideas from the Dutch test. Like I'm looking at, the res at these results and what I want is a full blood hormone panel with a full pituitary screen, right? So like I'm looking at the Dutch and immediately I just want to, I want a blood test instead. So then in the end, I'm just like, well, why don't I just go straight to the blood test? <laughs> like, why not save $300 and a bunch of time? So that's, that's where I've ended up. And so I still, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm similar. So I, I don't have any direct clients myself or not many, but I consult with, you know, digital health companies and other companies that do this kind of stuff. And we just, we just go straight to the source. People are coming in, you know, particularly if they have, you know, health or athletic performance goals, you do a full hormone panel and a full pituitary screen up front. Because, like, why would you mess around with anything in between? Uh, so just to sum up for the listeners, the Dutch, as, as I understand it, the Dutch test, I, I'm not, I don't think you're saying it's just bullshit. It's just not nearly as good as the, the blood test. And if you're going to get a test, you might as well go for the blood test. If you want, actually want an accurate result, uh, it just makes sense to do that, in your opinion. Like, it, even for yourself, you would want the blood test rather than the urine test, even though it's not necessarily bullshit 100%. Is that, is yeah, that correct? Yes. Yeah, so it's mainly in terms of what's like reliable, robust, actionable information. The blood tests are just like again and again. I kept going. I kept going back to like that's the information that that I need based on the evidence that we have. If we're going to like intervene, so that's that's just where I default. Okay. So there's some and, and useful stuff in there, but I I, okay. I always end up deferring to the blood test. Okay, so that's that's really good. We 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 got through two of uh, really uh, big tests: <laughs> the organic <laughs> acids and those uh, you know urine hormone tests. Mainly the Dutch test. I'm sure there's other companies like you said. And by the way, just for the listeners, you know Tommy's an MD PhD. Obviously a very smart guy. He's a professor. He knows his shit. He did a lot of research. It took him some time to realize that this wasn't yeah. legit. You know, it, it's not like this is easy to figure out this is like a very complex topic and i've been doing researching lab tests for 10 years and i still did not know until this day if it was bullshit i never told people this is bullshit i've told them these you know i, I can't read research on it so you know i don't know but this is like super important information because you know based on everybody i've spoken to this guy is the most reliable guy that i would trust for these tests the joe cohen show is unsullied by paid sponsors Similar to Self Decode, I'm creating this podcast to help educate and empower people with their health. I'm reaching out to all types of biohackers, health practitioners, entrepreneurs, and more to give you the most valuable information out there. So if you're enjoying this podcast, please show some support and be sure to leave a review and subscribe to get notified on every new podcast release. Uh, so moving on, the stool test. Right. Uh -huh. um, I think there's okay, I'll tell you my opinion and then, you know, you could disagree. I think there's some like they'll test for lactoferrin, which is obviously a legitimate test. There is some legitimacy to those tests. You tell me what I, what you think. Maybe I'm so wrong. 
so similarly, I think there's some useful stuff in there. And I will say anybody who who's like super into gut stuff or really wants to get into gut stuff, including testing, a very good friend of mine, Lucy Mailing. If like I have a gut question, she's she's the person I go to and she's she's amazing. You know, similarly, I used to do a bunch of stool tests. What I know about stool tests more recently has largely come from you know working with her and speaking with her. Similarly, where I ended up was you can you can figure out pathogens, important pathogens like H. pylori. Um, some other overgrowths, like especially in people who have significant symptoms, and you Candida. have some way sometimes. Although some like the, those those tests can be a little uh, dodgy as well, but that's okay. it certainly does exist. Like significant candidiasis that that requires antifungal treatment. Yes, like so those things you can pick up. And then there are some markers of you know gut inflammation that are that are maybe helpful. Cal protected. Beyond that, I think again we, we end up heading into to tea leaf reading territory. There are multiple tests that say that you know based on your stool, we can tell you what you should eat. Um, actually, there was a very nice study that just came out uh, by a company that kind of suggests that maybe that's not not the case, even though originally they thought that was the case. So uh, just to st- tell the story of day two because I think it's interesting. Uh, so these are scientists primarily based at the Weizmann Institute. They did a bunch of studies looking at individual responses in blood glucose to different foods. These were the first guys to really show that actually, you know, things like the glycemic index are essentially complete nonsense because you can have two different people eat the same carbohydrate-based food and see wildly different glucose responses. And I think that's important information. That's definitely true. Based on like a thousand people where they did stool tests and did all these blood sugar responses to foods, they created an algorithm that said, based on your gut microbiome, these are the foods that we expect you to have big blood sugar responses to. And so maybe you should eat less of those foods. In a couple of studies in diabetics, they showed that yes, this personalized diet resulted in low blood sugar responses compared to like a Mediterranean diet. In my mind, if you'd have just gone on a low carb diet, you would have seen the same thing. So I, I'm not entirely sure that they had the right control group. But anyway, it kind of worked. But then they just did a big randomized controlled study comparing a, a low fat diet to this personalized diet, looking at weight loss and a whole and some other things. They saw no difference. So if you're in just like a standard 500 calorie a day deficit, which is what they were, they had like a, an app that kind of supported both groups in terms of changing their diet, changing their behavior. No differences in weight loss. So it's a nice idea. I have hope for the future that we can get some good information out, out of the gut microbiome. People ask me all the time, why doesn't self-decode has microbiome? I was like, the science isn't there yet. It's it's cool, like it's cool, interesting stuff that's developing, but it's not as advanced as some basic, like the basic lab tests and, and yeah. genetics as well. There's way more research on genetics than there is on on the microbiome and so we're, we're not there yet where we can offer a product for it i, I don't know i don't know if you've ever used self-decode I, i've I used the i've used the the blood test portion yeah okay uh we, we, we we've updated a lot uh that a lot uh it was when, a few, it was a few years ago uh, it was okay, like three so or four years ago or something yeah, yeah we've uh, we've updated that a lot but you haven't used the genetic portion right no okay but genetics is not your area of expertise. Uh, is that correct? I've done a lot looking at like what interventional evidence do we have for like a specific SNP that it changes your like changes your intervention. And I'm not really sure I believe that there's much there either. So I'm but okay. I'm but I'm always willing to to like I said earlier. I'm always you can prove me wrong. Always very, always very happy to see great new evidence. No, I, by the way, you can give whatever opinion you want. Um, <laughs> people, no, seriously, but uh, the way we do it is actually different than other companies. 
So my CSO basically thinks it's mostly bullshit to recommend something based on a SNP that you can yeah. never recommend Agreed. something based on a SNP yeah. unless maybe like there's there's specific exceptions, but the rule as a rule, you can't do that. So yeah. I think you and him and me, by the way, are on the same page. We have polygenic risk scoring. So we look at hundreds of thousands of variants. And what we do is we look at the research and see what are the recommendations that have good double blind placebo controlled trials trials that actually work and that don't have, you know, if, if something has a trial that shows it works and one that shows it doesn't work, they kind of cancel each other out. So we really do look at a, a, ver a very deep dive of the uh, literature. And then we, we give all of the recommendations from the ones that would have the most impact. And then what we'll do is if we see there's a study that, you know, shows a specific variant that we, we think either has direct evidence or, you know, that we think might impact how that recommendation does, we can bump it up anywhere from one or a few spots so that the prioritization changes for each individual. Is there any scenario, now I'm interviewing you, is there any yeah, scenario yeah. where, um, <laughs> so I've done, I've done quite a bit with polygenic risk scores in, or for like this study that I'm doing, polygenic risk scores for cardiovascular disease and lipids okay. in particular. So in that study, we're using the GB Insight uh, polygenic risk score for 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 uh, hyperlipidemia okay. and then there's also there's a company in europe that i've spoken with and seen some of their some of their data called alelica which have a polygenic risk score for um, cardiovascular disease we benchmarked um, our stuff com uh, compared to them and ours yeah. uh beats them based on uh our, the, what we've done but yeah well it, it all depends on like none of them are great because if you then when you then apply the risk when you then apply well at least the ones that i've seen so far when you apply a certain polygenic risk score to a different population than the one that it was developed in like the utility drops off quite quite markedly 100 um, percent, and that's exactly why we've spent a lot of resources on actually determining people's ancestry so we have mm -hmm. a very good ancestry algorithm that's localized not like you know you're african but like you know, or European, like we can tell where you are in Europe or, you know, where your ancestors were. And uh, we're also, you know, getting, we, we applied to a bunch of different biobanks to get as many kinds of ethnic, ethnic data. And we're also getting that ethnic data that we adjust it based on each ethnicity, hmm. right? So that is very important. I, I'm, I'm yeah. happy you actually brought that up because you're right. <laughs> no, 100%. People don't understand that. So you have a polygenic risk score for like cardiovascular disease. And so actually I have a good Atherosclerosis, example. Atherosclerosis, let's say. Yeah, okay. right. So We have a good one for that. Okay. So there's a couple of published papers that say that if you have monogenic hypercholesterolemia, like familial hypercholesterolemia versus polygenic hypercholesterolemia risk versus sporadic or no genetic risk for hypercholesterolemia at the same level of LDL, the risk is highest in those with monogenic FH, which is a little bit higher than those with polygenic, which is then a little bit higher than those with sporadic. So at, at the same level of LDL, you still have differential risk. So then you are more likely to intervene based on genetics. And I think cardiovascular disease, that specific example is probably the one where we have the best evidence. Are there Correct. other examples that you guys have that where that's that that one case? has the best evidence? I, I I agree with you. That that that's why we're actually we're we're creating a, a laboratory developed test and. Eventually, we want to get it FDA approved, and it's going to be in that area. That one has, you know, because you can treat that, there's good treatments for it early. Yeah. You could say, okay, based on this, we would give statins earlier. And then the idea is who has the best polygenic risk score for it. And then, you know, there's a process to getting that approved. But there's reasonable science out there. And, and I think the technology is there to uh, basically predict that somebody has this level of LDL cholesterol. But if you have a high polygenic risk, 
you want to be more serious about it. And, and yeah. I look at myself, for example, I'll just t- tell you how I do, you know, view it for myself. Mm-hmm. I'm in the 85th percentile for atherosclerosis uh, based on a polygenic risk score that we have. The way I see it is my LDL is high as well because I'm eating an animal based diet. And, and I do that for very specific health reasons that I need to do that for. Mm-hmm. food sensitivities, things like that. I just know that, you know, given the same LDL, I'm going to be probably anywhere between like about three times higher risk for cardiovascular, for atherosclerosis based on this. And I need to take this more seriously than if I didn't have this polygenic risk score. I, I don't kind of view it in like this necessarily clinical, exact, precise way. That is something that needs more and more evidence exactly how much of a clinical effect that's going to have. And so the research is actively being it, progressing in that area, and I'm assuming you're doing something in that area as well, right? There's a bunch of research that's taking place in that. But what I know is that it's more important for me that if my LDL cholesterol is higher, that I need to take it more seriously. Would, would you say that that's like a reasonable position? I think that's a reasonable position. And there's some nice, um, there's actually a, a, a pretty good paper by Eric Topol. Uh, a couple of years ago, where we were talking about sort of you integrate genetic risk, and it, it, I think it definitely has to be polygenic risk scores with clinical risk, because then, right, at a, a given level of clinical risk, you increase or decrease your likelihood of intervening based on polygenic risk. And I think that makes, I think that makes perfect sense. You know, so for these genetic, you mentioned poly, it's important to do the polygenic risk scoring, because people in this industry, there's a lot of consumers that have no idea there's these companies that are looking at, you know, literally 50 SNPs, 100 SNPs, and they're telling you everything you ever wanted to know about your, you know, every disease and every this. And like, here's exactly what diet you should eat. And here's this. I'm like to people, this is all bullshit. Like you cannot do this with 83 SNPs or 50 SNPs or 100. You know, if you're looking at a polygenic condition like atherosclerosis or, or some kind of cardiovascular or some kind of chronic Alzheimer's, you need a polygenic risk score, unless you're looking at something very specific like APOE or something like that. But beyond that, you need polygenic risk scores. So would you agree with that? So so the thing that I think is even worse than the scenario you described, which is what I've had experience with, and I've had companies <laughs> who've been in the process of implementing this, and then I've like gone through the evidence line by line and been like, you don't have evidence for this. Like medical legally, you're going to get in trouble. Like this is a big, big companies trying to implement this stuff. And it's when you have 30,000 or 100,000 SNPs and each one individually generates its own recommendation. And then you look at, well, what's the evidence for this specific re- recommendation? And like, yeah, they'll find some paper so they can cite PubMed. So it's loosely associated. Like this is associated with some like small increase in odds of diabetes. Therefore, we're going to make you do this. Like, you just can't do that. And, and like, that's that's what I think is even worse. They're like, oh, we're best because we test 500,000 SNPs. And, like, based on each individual one, we'll give you a record. Like, you can't do that. Like, it's, no, that's absolutely not. Absolutely not. And when they say they test, they're not actually analyzing. They're not using 500,000 SNPs in a specific analysis, right? Yeah. So for every polygenic risk score, we tell you how many SNPs we use. It's usually anywhere between 50 to a million, uh, 50,000 to a million SNPs. And, you know, a lot of people have requested, tell me what my top SNPs are. And what we respond <laughs> is, there's literally a million SNPs here. <laughs> like, do you understand? And we ended up implementing the feature just because everybody wanted their top SNPs. So we gave them their top SNPs. But I think <laughs> but it's like from a scientific perspective, each of these SNPs has a very, very small impact, and you have yeah. to add them all up with these very sophisticated polygenic methods. A lot of misinformation in this industry. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I did. So I wrote a little paper a little bit about this uh, a few years ago. And it basically, it's all just sort of like the basic statistics of these things. And so I look at, I looked at the FTO SNP. I looked at MTHFR SNPs, uh, COMT SNPs. And if, if you look at some phenotype that you care about, so uh, BMI with, F, with FTO or um, homocysteine with MTHFR, like the thing that you care about overlaps so massively from one to the next. So you could have a very, you know, very significant, I'm doing like anybody who's listening to the audio, I'm doing like air quotes, very significant decrease in your MTHFR function. But 90% of people with that will have a homocysteine, which is the same as somebody with 100% function. I think I think there was like a 2% of the variability in homocysteine level is driven by your MTHFR status, right? It's just like you're, teeny tiny compared to B. You're like, right. There is a recommendation for that that is legit, though. For example, they right, have riboflavin. Clinical... Right, exactly. You yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> this guy knows his shit. You, you know your stuff. <laughs> no, because they showed that there was a significant reduction with blood pressure, with people who took riboflavin. Is that what you're yeah. referring to? Yeah, yeah, so it was actually, the one I'm thinking of is, particularly in those who are homozygous for C677T, just taking the RDA of riboflavin, 1.6 milligrams a day, uh, significantly reduces homocysteine levels. But it's, it's because the mutation affects how it binds to FADH2, which is derived from riboflavin. Okay, let's uh, go back to uh, some tests. What, what other tests... Uh, do you know about other tests that are that are nonsense i guess so we can go through a few some of the heavy metal tests definitely nonsense oh that's um, a great one yeah oh, thank you thank you for <laughs> and, bringing that up in, so in, wait in biome vi- uh, microbiome tests you think are bullshit overall yes okay right wait, now uh, I, I, right think, now. Okay. I, I think there's i again like similar to like i've always had hope in like genetic testing i have hope in microbiome testing we're just not there yet and anybody who says that we are kind of think they're lying to you or they're lying to themselves or both i, I wouldn't put microbiome in the same bucket as genetics but i agree with you in the no it's like the, the timeline is different right oh yeah exactly yeah. my cso yeah, yeah. says the same exact thing it's like yeah. microbiome is like genetics minus you know behind 10 years yeah exactly yeah yeah Completely so you know that. in 10 years it'll be where genetics is now and uh, there could be some cool stuff. We should probably do it in 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Maybe or 20. But yeah, or, maybe we'll whatever. end up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> exactly. agree. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. I think the trajectories may be similar. They're just like at different points on the on the curve. Right. Yeah. And, and so these heavy metal tests, I, I guess I just went through one today where somebody did a heavy metal test on the hair. And I'm like thinking, I don't know what to think of this, but, you know, please do blood tests. <laughs> Tell yeah. me what you think of th- – there's urine and there's hair. Please tell me what you think of those. It kind of makes sense, right? So so in particular, it makes sense for mercury, right? The, the, the theory. The theory being that there are different types of mercury, right? There's organic mercury and elemental mercury. They end up in different compartments in the body, hair versus urine versus blood, in different proportions, right? Which makes sense because, like, whether they're either lipid-soluble or not. That kind of makes sense. And so then, like, people might recommend, well, you do a urine test and a blood test and a hair test. I've never seen good evidence – that that's necessary often what happens and so this is this is my least favorite thing about urine heavy metal testing is that you do a provoked test which means they give you some kind of chelator that sort of concentrates the heavy metals in the urine but then their normal range is based on an unprovoked test basically the test is designed to give you a positive result and so then you can there you know your your functional medicine practitioner can prescribe you chelators or whatever make you worried about something so I love that's this. that's the worst part of, of heavy I, I love testing, this. I think. I, 
I love this because literally I, I told the same thing. I was like, I wonder if there's anybody who doesn't get high levels after you collate, <laughs> after you collate this. Like, it's pretty much just like, oh, we collate it. You got heavy metals. It's time to treat it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's the urine, like provoked urine, heavy metal tests, big no. Um, and I think blood tests, are, you know, there's some nice data on like blood lead and cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease risk, right? We can't prove causation, but I think the associations are strong enough that we should be concerned about that. Another thing, um, IgG allergy tests. Oh, I love that. Get, get out of town. They're in the UK and the US and like you do your pinprick at home and the test for foods that you're going to be sensitive to. And it's based on IgG rather than IgE, right? And IgE-based allergy tests, they're gold standard. They're great. Get them done by uh, a doctor who knows what they're doing. Fine. IgG, as it is raised against foods, is part of a normal adaptive response. So when you do an IgG-based allergy test or intolerance test the foods that you will see coming up against it that are positive are the foods that you eat regularly and that is a perfectly normal thing what happens is it's like oh look look at all these foods that i eat that i'm intolerant to i'm going to stop eating those that is exactly the opposite of what you should be doing because you're like <laughs> and, and then and then what will happen is you'll eat a whole bunch of different foods and then you'll test again and oh oh look these are the ones that now I'm producing IgG against because it's, a, it's part of a normal adaptive response to eating food because every time you eat the permeability of the gut increases slightly it's normal it's just like a part of the process there are things that make it worse and your general health makes it worse and yes I believe that pathological intestinal permeability is a thing but in this setting small increase in intestinal permeability as you eat perfectly normal and your body adapts to that and responds to that to make sure that you're getting appropriate immune responses or not and part of that is producing IgG and that's what you're testing with those tests. And in your practice, like you seeing clients, you notice that as well? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, like okay. just all the time. Um, and then, you know, again, uh, you know, I work with some some companies that, you know, some some testing companies as well. Uh, Thriver in the UK, I, I work with, they do some at home blood tests and some other things. And at one point, you know, recently, we were like, well, let's revisit, you know, what can you do in terms of allergy testing? And so I went through it all again, like, what's the evidence for IgG? And like, the evidence that there is, is that raising IgG against the food is probably a good thing. It's like a good adaptive response to the foods that you're normally eating. Right, because that IgG actually creates the tolerance yeah, to those exactly. foods. Now, another big hot potato. Uh, I'll keep you know throwing hot <laughs> potatoes your way. The Lyme, the chronic Lyme test or whatever the fuck they're doing with these oh, Lyme man. tests. Let me, so, let me hear it. So I'll, I'll admit that this is an area that I am less familiar with. And it's mainly because anytime I've gone near it, it just feels like this third rail that, you know, we've already touched a lot of third rails today, but there are people who I trust and like respect pretty well in this. And they're just like, they're big into it and they believe it's a thing. And, you know, I, I believe that people, you know, get sick with these like chronic rickettsial diseases. Like I, I believe that's a thing. Post-Lyme syndrome is actually... You know, the, the CDC recognizes yeah, it. It's a thing. It's a thing. no question yeah. about it. Yeah. But it's almost certainly overdiagnosed with these, like, again, super secret tests that you can only send to Germany, that, like, one lab that does it. And it just happens to be, like, every time they do it, they find it's positive. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So it's a thing. I definitely believe it's a thing. But I also think it's dramatically diagnosed. But that's as, like, again, compared to some of the other things we've talked about, less in my wheelhouse. I mean, like, my experience, like, people would send me these tests, and it was always positive. I'm just like, 
I want to see somebody who got negative on this test. <laughs> <laughs> like, show me a negative result. I, I want, yeah, like, what's the so you know with tests like developing tests, as you know, of course, like sensitivity and specificity, right? That's that's the thing. So, like, how likely is a positive test to be true, and how likely is a negative test to be true, right? And so you can get 100% sensitivity by just saying everybody's positive because then everybody who is positive turns positive, but then you don't think about the people who turn positive who are actually negative, right? That's your specificity. So these tests, I think they probably have really high sensitivity, but just like super low specificity. So you're telling loads of people that they're positive when they're not. That would be my guess. Okay, so I want to get to serum metals and serum vitamins. Uh, So I took this test for serum vitamins. And this is a case where I was skeptical because supposedly these serum results fluctuate a lot. And I had low results for certain B vitamins or whatever. And I was skeptical and I never really took it too seriously, but that was probably a big mistake. I actually found the ones that I was low on that I took had a big impact on my health. And so I'm just curious, maybe, you know, that's an N equals one. I'm curious what you think of, of like serum B1, serum B3, serum whatever vitamins, B vitamins or whatever. I mean, in general people do less of those other B vitamins, right? Like B12 and folate, you're done again and again. And, and we know that it's important, right? I mean, when, whenever I talk about blood tests for, B, for, for vitamins, I think about 10 years ago, I'm working in an elderly care ward in the NHS in the UK, in central London. The first time you diagnose an elderly individual with dementia, one of the first things you do is a dementia screen, which is iron, vitamin D, B12, folate, right? So even like 10 years ago in not necessarily like a functional medicine setting where we're testing these things because we know they're important. And actually, even then, the hospital that I worked at would have a reactive methylmalonic acid test for B12, which like looking back, I, I think it was actually pretty pretty impressive you see low b12 and then you and then methylmalonic acid only tells you about adenosylcobalamin but anyway it, it will kind of give you an idea is this actually like a functional b12 deficiency that's that's where you can see the cellular reaction to the deficiency so those things i think are important um, we have good data for that. The other B vitamins, my guess is it, it's similar because we know that we can measure these things. They're water soluble. They're going to be circulating in the blood. And it's likely if you have like a real, you know, a, a value that's really outside of what we might expect normally, and you can sort of tie it to some symptoms that you have. I think there's, there's, there's some utility there. You know, I, I'm also gauged by what's the risk versus benefit of the intervention, right? So if you have low circulating B1 or B2, and you take a little bit more, super low risk, right, with with potential benefit. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that, even if I don't have like, this large body of, of, of evidence to, to support that. Um, the, the only issue that I ever come up with, with uh, blood tests, and of course, this is something that you guys will uh, appreciate a lot, is that like, who's the population in which the, the normal range was developed? Because in general, your population is, on average, has at least one chronic condition, takes at least one long-term prescription medication right because that's the average adult population in the u.s on average they have pre-diabetes if you're comparing your blood test to theirs like i'm I'm not sure that that's a normal range i want to compare myself to sometimes like that gets a little tricky but other than that i think these these can be helpful i love everything you just said because it you know it it agrees with everything i say and and i like when people disagree too so i would have liked it anyway if it was different but like what you said about the b12 the b9 the methylmalonic acid i you know there's research there's good research on that my experiment with these b like it was significantly low the b1 and b3 on on these blood tests and i took him like i do individual dosing to really experiment it was like these were game changers b1 and b3 were game changers 
like it was super noticeable how deficient I was. And uh, and and again, I was very skeptical in the beginning. I felt like, uh, you know, what is this blood test for? <laughs> I don't know. But but it really, in the end, like for me, it was it was. And like you said, what what's the harms? And uh, so I I actually didn't take B three niacin for a while because there is some harms with that. Right. Yeah, it, it stresses the methylation system, uh, and it's also like, the flush is pretty gnarly if you take a decent dose of niacin. Correct. But, yeah. So I didn't take it for a really long time, but that was a big mistake because there's actually good research. One thing that I noticed is that my phosphorus was high, and I read this study that showed that low dose niacin can reduce phosphorus, like a hundred milligram, can reduce phosphorus very significantly. And I took low dose niacin. I took a blood test a week later. And it went down significantly, which is, I think it's like almost, you know, it's it's a good indirect proxy of that niacin deficiency. Plus, there was 10 other factors that I was looking at that all converged uh, along this niacin deficiency. And so that was like a game changer. And so was the thymine. And uh, something very interesting was that I was getting like four times the RDA of niacin. That's also why I never touched it. I was like, how could I be deficient in this if I'm getting four times the RDA? Right, it doesn't make any sense. And the same thing with uh, B1. I was like, I'm getting like four or five times the RDA. I was still deficient. Like it's very clear now, and I know those signs when I'm like not getting enough thymine or niacin. And it was just like, this is unbelievable. Like, I don't know, these RDAs are bullshit for me. Like again, like RDAs are uh, are pretty tricky in general. Like because of the way they're developed, the population they're developed in. I think they have some utility, right? Like population health level, but for like telling one individual whether they're eating the right amount we don't really have much evidence for that so yeah like kind of useful at a high level but maybe less useful at an individual level ldl cholesterol as you know there's like a lot of people that are like oh ldl cholesterol is bullshit you know like they basically do this data mining they'll look at look at this one association study if you look at if you manipulate this data here and you look at the people who are between 80 and 90 the people who had an ldl of 160 showed lower mortality and therefore ldl is bullshit tell me what you think and 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 maybe you agree with i don't know it's actually, actually interesting because so I run this um, sort of international student journal club. And one of the students yesterday, he gave a presentation on alternative hypotheses for cardiovascular disease, uh, which is obviously directly relevant to this. That is true. Like we've seen it in multiple data sets that once you get older individuals, those with higher total and LDL cholesterol live longer. Like seen it multiple times. A big part of that is reverse causality, right? That as you get sick, your LDL drops. Uh, for various reasons, cancers and other things, right? It's not that the LDL is somehow protective. So that's one part of it, right? So LDL is a, a proxy marker for ApoB, which is you know, all the ApoB containing life proteins, which includes VLDL and chylomicrons and LDL particles and LP little a, right? That's one of our primary risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And you talked about MendeLeaf randomization studies, and they've looked at that. There's this log linear relationship between ApoB levels and cardiovascular disease risk based on your, your genetics. And this is where your polygenic risk scores come from. What I think is interesting is that, again, it, it, it relates to the population that we're talking about. So I think ApoB is absolutely a critical risk factor for cardiovascular disease. I think there is an interaction with overall health and the environment. In order for, you know, from what I've seen, in order for ApoB particles to be retained in the endothelial wall, you probably 
need some kind of uh, intimal hyperplasia first. So like the part of the wall of the, of the uh, arterial vessel starts to sort of like grow thicker and it becomes slightly hypoxic and you get these new blood vessels that come in that aren't like really well formed. And so like you have this change in the artery that's directly related to you know, insulin resistance and all these uh, metabolic health and blood pressure and blood glucose and all these things. And then you sort of like set the scene for this stuff to, to accumulate over time. In a westernized population who, like we already said, is on average sick and pre-diabetic, then like the scene is already set. So of course you see this big signal for APOB because everybody everybody has this scenario whereby you have an increased risk of, of, of this thing happening. For me, there's an interesting intellectual question which says in people who have pristine health, everything is great. And you can tell like great blood pressure, great blood sugar, all this stuff is good. They're lean, they're fit, they're athletic, but they have high APOB or high LDL, LDL particle. What is their cardiovascular risk, right? Because, you know, based on what I just said, they should be a lower risk for these things being retained and, and there being an issue. And the answer is we don't know. Like, hype, like I think in theory, this person is, is at lower risk, right? For multiple reasons. But if you took those two same people or two people with like pristine health and one had high APOB and one had lower, the person with higher APOB has a higher relative risk of cardiovascular disease. But what's their absolute risk? My guess is it's it's still fairly low. But again, we don't know the answer to this. And this is actually part of a study that I'm working on. We're looking at people like this. They have, they're in great health, but they have, happen to have high APOB. What does their progression of atherosclerosis look like? And I'm kind of peripherally involved, but I'm involved in that study. So I think this is all like super interesting, but I think APOB particularly at a population level, is incredibly important because of the population we're talking about. Um, and then I think there's interesting intellectual questions about how that interacts with general health that we still and we still ha have to answer those questions. I love you, man. Everything you just said is uh, literally what I've been thinking the whole time. That <laughs> literally, like, you're right. ApoB, LDL particle number, those, those are the main causal factors. And LDL cholesterol is just a proxy of those, right? Yeah. And, and I mentioned LDL cholesterol because that's what your doctor that's what people, is testing. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've tested the LDL particle number, the ApoB, the lipoprotein A, the VLDL, because I'm, I'm at a higher level of knowledge and I want to get those directly. But when I just say LDL cholesterol, what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm saying that because people are not testing these things. The LDL cholesterol correlates very well with the ApoB, LDL lipoprotein a particle number, things like that. I I'm one of those cases, by the way, pristine health. And the only thing that's wrong is the, you know, my HbA1c is very low. My uh, HSCRP is very low. All these other cardiovascular risk factors are very low, but my lipoproteins are higher, including lipoprotein A, LDL particle number, and ApoB is, is 98. I got it down to 98, but so it's not like high, but it, you know, it's not optimal. And so I'm a, like, you could say a very good test case for what you're trying to figure out. And, you know, I, I kind of toss around that same theory and I haven't been able to find good research on that. What happens when you're pristine health and you have these... And so there's some people uh, that like, you know, like carnivore MD, who basically says like, there's no risk, whatever. It's a hypothesis, right? Yeah. We don't know. This is what you're it's trying to figure out. It's an interesting yeah. hypothesis. But to say that we have the answer, we don't have the answer. Like, that's the real problem is to pretend. And, and, yeah. and I think the base hypothesis should probably be that there is some risk, right? Because we know that there's risk fact, these are independent risk factors, and we don't completely understand 100% the, the biology of atherosclerosis. It's not like a settled science, 100%. I think the, the base assumption should be that there probably is higher risk, but we don't know. And, and it's an interesting hypothesis to test that there isn't higher risk. 
And I would love to know that answer, but I wouldn't say that the hypo- like I wouldn't say that my hypothesis is going to be that there's no risk, and you know say that with confidence because there's no evidence for that. We we completely agree on this, and it's very interesting. I want to I, this is an answer that I want to know. I think you know the, the other side. There are people who say that your metabolic health doesn't matter. All the matters is getting your upper B lower. I don't think that's necessarily true because there are lots of studies that show interactions between upper B level and either fasting insulin level or triglyceride HDL ratio and like some measure of insulin sensitivity. And these things interact. So I think, you know, there are multiple things at play here. So just saying that one is definitely true or the other is definitely true. I don't think we can say that. There is the potential for these, this one subset of the population who are in pristine health, but otherwise have high LDL particle or high upper B or high LDL cholesterol. It's a very small number of people relatively right right? Right. so so i think by focusing on that too much you know it's an important intellectual question like it's great when you think about the general population who again are in poor health overall we risk making them think that their lipids don't matter when they're in poor health when of course we know that they do we need to really figure out what it is we're talking about when we're talking about it and who we're really talking about and like if we do that i think we, we can make some headway but People like to talk in like absolutist. What would you do in my situation? Because I'm dealing with this question. And I think me and a lot of people who are carnivore or low carb or, or things like that, where they're in pretty good health, they're insulin sensitive, and really, you know, their LDL goes up because of these diets. Would you uh, work on lowering it as like a personal thing? Like, what, what's your position? I personally would get more information. So things like a cholesterol balance test. Like, is it primarily driven by absorption? Is it primarily driven by production, right? Where is the, where is some of this cholesterol coming from? Because that can then give you an idea of where you might intervene if you want to intervene. Like, is it, is a, should it be like a statin? Should it be uh, azetamide, some combination, maybe a, a low dose of that combination? You can maybe have a, a better combined effect with, you know, fewer potential side effects. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of tools in, in that box that don't necessarily have to be statins if, you know, depending on what's going on. And I would also... I would get at minimum a coronary artery calcium score, and uh, you can if you do it through something like clearly, then you can get something closer to a CT angiogram, which is the the gold standard. So ideally, I'd get a CT angiogram because that's going to tell Higher you like, radiation though. It is yeah, but even then, the dose is still fairly low in the whole world of thing like things that you're exposed to. A couple of CT angiograms in your life, not something that I'm going to particularly worry about. I wouldn't do it you know, like every six months um right but you know um you know if, if you're trying to figure out your baseline risk I, i'd want to know that because the ct angiogram can show you like how much the vessels are occluded how much you have like soft plaque versus calcified plaque and the software is getting better and better so they like the resolution is is, is really great so so those are the things i do figure out like which aspects of lipid metabolism are maybe driving the rise how do you uh, figure fig- that out how do you figure that out yeah, so uh, if if you look at stanols versus desmosterol, you can see like is and so this is um Boston Heart does this test, the cholesterol balance test. These are intermediates in pathways, either from uh, cholesterol absor- or cholesterol or phytosterol, like plant based phytosterol absorption uh, from the gut versus you know endogenous production. Because like different people will be like hyper absorbers, right? So this is actually just like cholesterol that's coming from the diet that you're, that you're absorbing versus people who are going to be you know, producing more of their own. And that's mainly important if you plan to intervene, because you might tinker your, your, your intervention. Um, and then I would, and then I would figure out my, um, my baseline, like arterial health. Part of the problem is, and, and we see this again and again, and we don't really have a good answer for it, is that somebody has been in poor health, now they're in better health, but 
their arteries aren't in great shape. And we don't know where or when that happened. We do seem to know that, so based on something like a coronary artery calcium score, if your score increases over time, but it's because the density of the plaque is increasing and not because the volume of the plaque is increasing, right? Denser plaque is more stable. What happens is that you, you generate some initial atherosclerotic plaques and they become calcified and stabilized. And actually, that's one of the potential mechanisms of, of statins is stabilizing plaques by making them more calcified. So you can, so I've seen this in some people who have like a history of poor health and then they have, you know, a chronic calcium score of say 200 and then they make a bunch of health changes and then the score goes up, but it's because the plaque is getting denser and more calcified. And that's probably a good thing. So you can kind of track some of this stuff longitudinally with a coronary artery calcium score, but it still gives you an incomplete picture. I want to ask you, like, are there any labs that you're trying to get in an optimal range? Right. So, so I guess the test that I would most frequently test in myself and others, just like as a, as a, as a baseline, uh, were all the things that you've, you've mentioned. So uh, a CBC, with differential, uh, a CMP, you know, like not everybody does a, a gamma GT, like I would, I would include that. So you know, like the basic uh, electrolytes, um, and then, you know, base, you know, basic lipids, I think, you know, a reasonable idea of your LDL and your triglyceride to HDL ratio, particularly as somebody of Northern European heritage, where the triglyceride to HDL ratio seems to be most useful, maybe SHBG and a total, total testosterone vitamin d those things that's that's probably like the core and maybe we could expand that a bit from there but that's that's most things and so i think blood sugar control yeah, we didn't talk about like hba1c blood sugar control i think is relatively important and then uh then i think then there's a whole bunch of stuff that we'd get out of uh you know the the, the cbc particularly around red blood cells so hemoglobin mean corpuscular hemoglobin i think it's difficult to talk about optimal like i've already said but I, but i have some thresholds in my mind that are based on sort of like hard outcomes in large-scale population data that, that i think are, are, are worth aiming for and so those that you know and, and again based on some of these sort of more simple markers and those those are the kind of things that, that's the first thing yeah I, w- I would always always get done i sent you a, a link of uh, all the lab tests that i check for in the email and oh, yeah. i'm just curious yeah just like uh scan through it i'm curious if you think any of them i shouldn't be doing or it's like nonsense or like, <laughs> why are you doing that or i don't know <laughs> um Good. And maybe it's a list for you to do as well, like you know, if you think it's no, so. A lot of the, a lot of this stuff, yeah. So a lot of this stuff is stuff that I would do, but I uh, that I forgot to mention. So yeah, fasting insulin or a C peptide definitely useful. Iron studies, iron like ferritin, super important, particularly in in men as they get older. That like that's great. H- CRP, another good one. I would definitely do that. Talked about homocysteine before. I would definitely do homocysteine. Um, I wouldn't always necessarily do the full like lipid panel like you have have here, like APA B and that kind of stuff because. Once you've done it once, you probably know where you, your proportions lie. Like, I know that I, I probably have slightly higher LP little a. That probably makes up a little bit of my of my upper B. And that's unlikely to change because that's largely genetically driven. No, but uh, actually, I, I, I want to say something about that. My LPA, I've been tracking since 2012. I've took, taken four tests for it. At one point, it was – and I have the uh, sheet here. Uh, let me just – bring up my results and you're right like you you the research says like oh it's genetic this that and the other but my lp little a basically uh i'll tell you the exact numbers it used to be 17 in june 2012 and then in 2019 it went to 42 then in october 2022 went to 51 and i just did another one and it was 70 all right like a month climbing yeah so 
like I, I agree based on the research, you know, you, you oh, this doesn't really change. Bullshit for me in, as an individual. <laughs> Tested and confirmed, not true. Yeah. And, and, well, and I was taking a lot more olive oil between uh, the last two tests. And then I read this study that showed oleic acid can actually increase lipoprotein A. You know, I don't know. Is that what it was? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that be, that's very interesting. And, well, I guess you, you'll get a lot of oleic acid if you're eating a lot of animal fats as well, right? Because that's, yeah. that's the predominant fat but it, animal fats. Based, one of the things I wanted to do was, like, lower my blood urea nitrogen, uh, like my, my urea, and, and because I was eating a lot of protein. And I was also wor- I'm also working out. And so I said, okay, let me include more olive oil. And so I upped my olive oil. The LP way just shot up like crazy. And... I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, can't be olive oil. So I'm like looking up everything that I was doing differently. And, and the only thing I was able to find was the, the olive oil. And I'm not saying, by the way, there's contradictory studies. Like, I think a majority of them found that it increased. But it, it's it's not by any mean like a, a settled science. But it seems to be that that was the main difference that I did. And that was the effect. So did you stop there, taking other supplements? Because L-carnitine, vitamin C, NAC, and niacin can all decrease LP little eight. Sometimes it has to be massive doses for it to make a big effect. And this, this is also like single case studies and small trials. So it's not it's nothing like really massive. But if you stop taking a supplement of any of those, that could be it as well. 100%. I looked into that as well. So I was taking vitamin C and I was still taking vitamin C. And uh, I didn't never, I wasn't taking NAC before or after. The L-carnitine, I was thinking about that. I, I may, have di- may have not taken it the day or a couple days before. That is something I was thinking about, but I also wasn't taking it all the times before or, you know, when it was uh, 17 and 42. So it could have had an influence. I'm not saying not. Maybe that. And when you look at the research, it's not like a massive impact. So yeah, it's not something that will increase Unless it's at massive doses, like massive doses of niacin in like an individual case studies. So like, yeah. Yeah. It's unlikely Uh, to have a huge effect. So I, I was taking, well, I'm talking about the uh, carnitine. I was taking 500 milligrams and maybe I didn't take it a few days before. Uh, that's not that much. That's not that much carnitine. No, though. no. So I, I and, and what you see in the research is like maybe eight points or something. I don't remember exactly, but I don't think it was the carnitine based on, you know, uh, just the history and things like that. It could have been like, you know, maybe eight points or whatever. I don't know. But I, I think it was the olive oil. And, and I have to confirm it. I'm not, you know, it's, it's just theories that I think maybe did it. But I just wanted to stop you there that like, you know, maybe I agree in the research. It seems like it's not that dietary related. But for for me, it is. You have a very extensive hormone panel. I probably, I wouldn't <laughs> frequently do all of those. I agree. Um, I agree. I'm not, but, I'm not testing but all no, of no, them. All, all of these are things. So particularly if I'm, so if somebody comes in first, but the first time I'd do their test, I would I would do m- most of these. And, and the reason is because what happens is you get a test that's off. And the first question is, oh, but I, I, I need to check the upstream hormone, right? So like a number of times, it's probably four or five times now, I've had male athletes come in and they have, you know, they have recovery issues and, and some other things and their testosterone is low and they've been working with these you know other practitioners doing a whole bunch of stuff trying to increase their testosterone and then we end up doing a full pituitary screen and they have high prolactin and they have a prolactinoma uh, or a microprolactinoma and that's happened enough times for me to say now every time the first time i see you if i'm going to test your hormones i'm going to do a full pituitary screen just because i don't i don't want to like mess around when there's something more important that you need to go and, you need to go and see a neurosurgeon for to fix and and like particularly if people have a history of concussions and they might have some kind of pituitary dysfunction because of that right so 
So a lot of this stuff I would do up front, but wouldn't necessarily repeat a lot of times. What, what do you think about like, uh, you know, some of the ones that I want to test, I haven't tested yet. Plasminogen activator inhibitor one, PI-1, von Willebrand uh -huh. factor, fibrinogen, NT-pro BNP, and then circulating amino acids. So I've been reading tons of studies on circulating amino acids and a whole bunch of different Mendelian randomization studies. So that's kind of why I'm interested now. We have genetic predispositions and self-decode for all these things, but I'm curious, like, you know, would you get these tested? Most of the ones you list there, uh, PA1, von Willebrand factor, fibrinogen, NT-pro BNP, right? These are mostly cardiovascular disease yeah, related. Which is what right? I'm worried about, right? Yeah, and so fibrinogen, we know that elevated fibrinogen is a risk factor for, for cardiovascular disease. There's almost certainly like a thrombotic, you know, blood clotting aspect of cardiovascular disease risk. So, you know, I think testing those at least once or, or maybe multiple times if, if, if you intervene, it can be can be useful. Um, it's not done routinely, but again, there are there's evidence to suggest that they, these are important as part of that process. NT-proBNP is usually used as a marker of heart failure, so some kind of like marker of cardiac strain, and we do that in it's done in heart failure patients to to track heart, heart failure uh, progression. The circulating amino acids, it's been a it's been a few years since I've looked at the research there. And I was never particularly excited by anything that I found. Um, but there may well be some stuff that's, that's coming at, up. That, that's more look at the updated stuff. The Mendelian yeah. randomization is, is interesting. The question is, can you manipulate it at all? Because it's not because like the, the, the amino acids you eat aren't necessarily the amino acids that circulate. I, I think you bring up a good point. But I, I think what you're coming to is like, great to test all these things at least once and then you know a lot of the, like and i agree same same situation test everything once uh then a lot of the things maybe you know once every five years or something or whatever but like and then there's going to be things that i'm going to be testing more often and i think w w you mentioned the apob you don't need to test it that often for me i want to test it as often as possible because i'm doing interventions so i need to see what interventions are working which is a different story ideally Every time you got an LDL cholesterol test, you would get APOB instead. I mean, it's a better marker. We know that. The reason why I say you wouldn't necessarily need to test it every time is because it is just not standard. So if you're like having to pay out of pocket, you know, versus your, your doctor will get it for you and it's covered by your insurance. For, for a lot of people, that becomes an important, you know, consideration. So ideally, you would just measure APOB every time and not LDL cholesterol because it's a because you're measuring it as a proxy of APOB. And so that's not something I test anymore. But it was something that I, I used to be very interested in. Awesome. So my last question here is, you know, I, I guess it's two questions or, yeah, how many supplements do you take, if any? I don't know. I don't have any prior knowledge. And which ones? Like, or, or if you take a lot, tell me the top ones. I guess now that it's winter, I, I'll take vitamin D, but I will test, I'll test my levels and... Usually when I test my levels, I'll also test PTH if I can to figure out whether it's, I'm in the range that, for me. Then I take creatine all the time. Creatine is my number one supplement that I think everybody with a brain should take. Um, <laughs> Even and, if you eat a lot of meat? Yeah. Okay. Unless you're, you're on a carnivore diet and you eat five plus pounds of meat a day, then you probably <laughs> don't need creatine. Everybody well, you're else probably not even going to eat that amount of meat, even on a carnivore diet. Yeah, probably yeah. not. Probably not. So I think most people should take creatine. And I also take I also take magnesium uh, at night before I go to bed. Those are the things I take regularly. Um, I will intermittent, like once a week, I'll take lithium orotate. Um, okay. And five milligrams or five milligrams. Yeah. Okay. And there's no amazing data out there, but there's enough like circumstantial evidence to make me think 
this is again a super low risk thing potential benefit i'll take it i don't particularly notice anything when i take it but you know it's it's interesting it's interesting to me um i also uh take or intermittently take uh wild blueberry anthocyanins and cocoa flavonols because of their effect on vascular health and cognitive function and i think the evidence for those is is is, is pretty good that's pretty much it okay Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I I take all those things that you mentioned. Um, <laughs> but I take a lot of supplements, probably way too many. But, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a living experiment over here. I think you have a lot of great knowledge. And it's clear that, like, I like how your brain works and, and how you have this mix of skepticism, but also open minded, which, which is how I am. Uh, yeah, so awesome talking to you. Uh, where can people find you? Any last words or um no i mean this has been really great a lot of this stuff you know i I haven't talked about for a while because like more recently i've been talking about more like high level general population kind of improvements for health so it's nice to kind of get back into the really nerdy weeds again so i really appreciate that uh the best place to find me is probably on instagram uh, at dr tommy wood i don't have that many followers so i usually get to, I, I usually have the time to respond to the messages that i get so if you have any like specific questions you can send them there and i'll and i'll try and make sure i get back consider to you. me a new follower <laughs> Thanks. i love it i love it i love it you're, you're great okay awesome thank you so much for coming on and uh have a great day Hope you enjoyed this. Please subscribe. Please like. Please review. Whatever it is, YouTube, you like. iTunes, review it. And this way, I will do more of it if I see that people are really liking this stuff.